Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to the Versus Stars podcast, third season. How my loyal listeners? Thank you for continued support. And remember, click the subscribe button, everybody. This is an amazing episode because Aaron Walfke boards the mothership. He's a producer, executive producer, and writer of Star Trek Prodigy. Now, come on board as we go traversing the stars. Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for coming to the Versus Stars podcast. Hey, uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, happy to be here. It's, great. it's definitely an honor to speak with you, sir. So I always start off with the question of inspiration. So what inspired your love for um, writing and who your earliest influences? Oh, interesting. Well, I mean, it's hard to say who my uh, inspiration for writing was because, you know, I, I think I was always a bit obsessed with all kinds of sort of, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and genre fiction. Uh, my, my dad definitely instilled in me uh, a healthy love of, of that sort of thing. From an early age, I think he he wanted me to stop reading Goosebumps books, so he he thrust uh, The Hobbit into my hands, and, and I uh, and then somehow transitioned from that to Lord of the Rings, and then to Dune. So it was a very quick <laughs> transition. Um, and then, of course, in t on the TV side, um, he and I watched Star Trek together for as long as I can remember. Um, you know. My first show was Star Trek: The The Next Generation, uh, which I watched live uh, when it premiered way back in 1987, uh, and then uh, watched TOS, and of course, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and on and on and on. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as far as like who influences me, you know, I I always love where there's sort of like a bit of cosmic wonder meets, uh, you know, a little bit of sort of uh mystery or absurdity <laughs> you know I, I i i on the fantasy side i love terry pratchett and mm. douglas adams on the sci-fi side but uh you know i also really enjoy uh hard science fiction authors you know like uh asimov i i remember devouring his whole irobot and foundation uh and uh whatnot and you know the list goes on and on they're all it's all great <laughs> so so now you're the producer the executive producer and a writer on Star Trek Prodigy. Um, congratulations. That's a hell of a lot of to balance for one person, but good job. Um, so how did you get involved with this project? Was um, How was it pitched to you, the idea of it? Yeah, so um, my... Um... My involvement with the project started with the Hagemans, uh, who uh, I had collaborated with them on a series uh, it, that came out a few years ago that was uh, from Guillermo del Toro called uh, Tales of Arcadia. It started with uh, Troll Hunters, and then there was Three Below, and then uh, Wizards Tales of Arcadia. It was sort of a, a science fantasy series that was on Netflix. Um, I think around 80 episodes total, half hour, uh, and it was very Amblin, very sort of 80s movie, you know, it took a lot of inspiration from Goonies and Gremlins mm -hmm. and and uh, Close Encounters and just about anything you can imagine. Uh, so, you know, th and that was, believe it or not, my first TV project before that I worked in features, but um, they, they brought me on board. And of course, it was a tremendous honor to work with them and uh, Mark Guggenheim and of course, Guillermo del Toro. Um, and uh, like eventually myself and uh, uh, Chad Quant, who was also a writer on season one of Prodigy, um, were promoted to be showrunners of Tales of Arcadia, and our offices were right next to theirs. Um, 
while at um, at DreamWorks, and they I think they were writing a movie for them at the time, and they uh, they kind of popped their head in and were like, so you like Star Trek, right? And I was like, yes, I do. Uh, and sure enough, I had actually worked in a lot of very subtle references to Star Trek in the Tales of Arcadia series because I knew it forward and backward. And I thought, I feel like as far as shared universes go, it was kind of like the original blueprint for that. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, they they kind of said, oh, we had this great meeting with Secret Hideout uh, uh, where they want to do sort of a young adult type show with the Trollhunters guys. And I'm like, well, you're, I'm a Trollhunters guy, though. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, they they kind of loosely tossed the idea my way. Like, Does that sound right? Like some kids find a man in Starship. And I was like, that sounds great. You know, maybe you could add a hologram character. <laughs> you know, just very, very, just I wanted it to succeed because I love Star Trek shows, and uh, and sure enough, you know they happened to pitch it to Secret Hideout and Nickelodeon, and uh, and CBS loved it, and it just was one of the fastest, I think, development turnarounds I can think of. And within a, like a few months, the writers' room was open, and we were off to the races. Now, what's so cool about Star Trek Prodigy is that it's it's, it's not only is a great show for people of all ages, but it's sneakily at the beginning seems very unconventional star trek you know um almost star wars ish however as it develops it becomes very much the core of what star trek is all about and discusses it Mm -hmm. so how much of a risk did it feel like to establish it at that beginning before you you move into the deeper um, star trek um, elements yeah i mean i i think that when anytime you're trying something new, you know, trying to find a, a, a way in for a new audience or reinvent a franchise without repeating yourself, you know, I think there's only so many super duper duper uh, Death Stars you can introduce <laughs> before you start to create something different. Um, I think you always have to take a bit of a risk, uh, you know, and we, we had a lot of very um, long and serious conversations about like, what is the Star Trek franchise as it is now? You know, what is the fan base composed of? What are they sort of expecting? How can we surprise them in a way that also feels organic? And there's a few elements that we really wanted to tackle, one of which was there had never been a show that started outside the Federation before. The closest we got, which I would argue was the most experimental Star Trek prior to this, was Deep Space Nine, which was one of my favorites uh, of all of Star Trek, uh, you know, and, but if you remember when Deep Space Nine first came out, it, there was a, a bit of a controversial element to it because, you know, you're the Cisco wasn't a captain yet and they weren't even on a starship exploring. It was in one fixed space outside of the Bajoran wormhole. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of people that were like, this doesn't feel like Star Trek. It's a little dark and gritty. There's a war brewing, but you know, as the series wears on, you realize that that uh, it, that's exactly what afforded it to tell really interesting stories that still fit perfectly within the Star Trek universe. But but they just sort of like ran far afield of beyond what had been done and planted a flag and said, "No, now this is Star Trek too." And that was very exciting for me because as a, a hardcore Star Trek fan, um, there were so many things like 
you know, that I'm sure you had in your experience in the fandom of like, there were calls for like, why can't there be an all alien crew? Yep. You know, why is it always human humans? Why can't the aliens be a little bit more uh, exotic looking rather than just having guys with rubber on their foreheads? Uh, and, you know, and, and show other shows certainly tried that here or there with budget permitting, like Voyagers of Species, is it 8472, where very clearly they were kind of pushing at the boundaries of what 90s television could do as far as alien designs. But, the, you know, having an all CGI character back then was unheard of. It would have been the cost of, uh, you know, every frame was the cost of a movie or something. Um, but, you know, flash forward 15, 20 years to where we are now, um, the television so as an art form has kind of evolved to be a lot more cinematic and, and capable of taking those bolder swings. And I, I, you know, I think there, there was always going to be a risk of, of like, will they hang with it and see what the magic trick we were pulling of that sort of sleight of hand where at first it does feel very remote and uh, starting with characters that know nothing about the, the Federation or its ideals. And then gradually using that as a platform to, to inform new and young audiences piece by piece, character arc by character arc, what Star Trek is on a very fundamental level which is something that I don't think has ever really been done. And that, that also was very exciting to us because you know, just having those conversations in those early weeks um, of what, is, if you were to explain Star Trek to a complete novice, a, a tabula rasa, what, what would be the things you wanted to emphasize? Like, this is why it's a great show. And also these are the things you need to understand are like, what is, what, what is a phaser and why is it, better than a lightsaber you know <laughs> and, and or or even like what is the prime directive or how does a transporter work uh, and there's all these things that as we kind of dug into it we realized uh, for instance the prime directive which i mentioned had never been ever outlined in totality on a star trek show before ours before until now it was always kind of sort of alluded to or paraphrased but no one had ever put the whole thing on screen and thankfully, uh, uh, another fantastic Star Trek uh, writer, David Goodman, had already written uh, what I feel is the definitive, and now it is, the definitive uh, uh, answer of what the Prime Directive is in uh, one of the Star Trek books. So we were able to use that with his permission and codify it into canon. Uh, and that was very exciting to us. And I think now that all the first 20 episodes are out, people actually really uh, appreciate that we did it that way because I hear from people every day, you know, I couldn't get my kid involved, interested in the other Star Treks because it felt like they were playing catch up all the time. Yeah. But now they've finished your season and now they want to go watch Voyager. They want to find out, you know, who that uh, JT Kirk guy was, <laughs> you know? And, and I think that's why I think the show is so brilliant is that by having hologram Janeway teach the crew about star trek and the ideals you are teaching the audience about those same ideals and you're you're not only that but those i seem ideals are the ideas you want young audience to learn anyway and that's a brilliant way to mix all that um so when you were thinking about the ideas of star trek were you thinking that these are also the ideals that young artists should be learning on um, television yeah I, I i think we took that very seriously and i i do i certainly do with anything that i i work on is uh, in a, i think theme usually naturally evolves out of character but at the end of the day you do have to pause and think of like what are we really saying here 
<laughs> you know, and I think when we're when we were kind of reflecting on what can these kids that grew up with nothing really uh, benefit from a play a, a, a utopia in the making like the Federation. And, you know, we looked a lot at things like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and, you know, can you take someone who was given nothing and effectively build them up so that like unmolded clay, they could be shaped into their best or at least better selves. And, you know, and what does that mean? And what, what sort of things not only can these kids learn from Starfleet, but uh, what is it that maybe the, their presence in the Star Trek universe could kind of impart to Star Starfleet or the Star Trek fandom at large. And I think I think the thing that we wanted to do on a sort of metatextual level was say, hey, you know, whatever preconceptions you have about who who belongs in Starfleet or who doesn't or or what is Star Trek, I you know, the very nature of Star Trek begs you to widen that horizon and always be looking out to see who else can you uh, reach a hand out to and hopefully lift them up. Now, I think another thing that is both brilliant and risky that you did with the show is that you allowed your characters to grow throughout the season, um, especially as they're learning the lessons um, taught by Hologram Janeway. They are developing as individuals, um, coming of age, things of that nature. Um, a lot of shows, especially sometimes old Star Trek, has a hesitancy to allow the characters to grow. So was there a discussion? And what was the discussion like about how you're going to let these characters evolve? And how are you being careful not to let them evolve maybe either too far or in a direction where you could continue telling a certain type of story? Right. Well, I, you know, I, part of that is something that uh, I actually discussed uh, with Brandon Braga at recently, um, you know, and he, he sort of bemoaned the fact that as, as nice as it was to work on that era of television, you know, TNG through Voyager and, of course, the movies and whatnot, um, there was a, a mandate from the studio that said you have to re reset everything at yep. the end of the season, and even the, the slightest scintilla of continuity was sort of, sort of brought would bring the hammer down. <laughs> uh, but in this in this day and age, uh, it you know it's just changed, and that was one of the things we discussed, and, and it's something that we had kind of figured out how to do on Tales of Arcadia, and we're like, let's do it here, like it, it, which was. Uh, don't be afraid of, um, you know, the serialization element, at least coming through in terms of character development, which is something that I think even Strange New Worlds has kind of embraced, where they have their sort of episodes of the week, but they but they track the an emotional character continuity over the course of the season. And that's something we tried to do, too. And I think in in this era of television, where you do have people that are binging it, and you have people that watch it week to week, or they watch three episodes and forget about it for two weeks, or whatever. You know, as long as you're careful to kind of remind people where they are in that journey, you can. The the gates are wide open now. And and I think mostly, I think one of the favorite parts of the series is hologram hologram Janeway. Um, you know, obviously audience favorite from Star Trek Voyager. Now, when you were determining to create that character. Did Kate McGrew had already agreed to, to be a hologram? And was there a backup plan in case she said, I'm not doing the character, I'm done with, I don't do cartoons? Um, maybe it was foolhardy, but believe it or not, uh, we did start writing the show without Kate officially saying yes, because she wanted to see before she agreed, uh, probably rightfully so, to be quite honest, because it's no small ask to, to say, hey, can you reprise this character that was such a huge part of your life? 
Um, and so, you know, we we moved forward with the full faith and confidence that she would eventually, uh, you know, say yes. That you know, once she once we had enough scripts and she was able to read them and see what we were doing, and thankfully she once she read the scripts, she was like, okay, I get it. This is fabulous, and I, I and I think that the mission statement here is is absolutely something that is worth pursuing in Star Trek and in storytelling, but. There, there was a period where you know we, we that was not a sure thing and and uh, you know we we did, as far as backup plans go you know I think the the only one I can think of you know the the, the biggest easiest backup plan was just make it an original character which mm. we could have done I don't know if it would have had the same impact uh, but if that was that was maybe the the backup plan as far as the hologram Janeway. As far as the real Janeway, believe it or not, we had independently pitched, what if it was Riker and the Titan instead? Oh. And, then, and then I think just after we pitched that secret hideout, I was like, you should talk to Mike McMahon. <laughs> because he had, he had just turned in the, the season finale where he revealed that Titan and the Titan and Riker were becoming uh, part of, <laughs> of uh, the Lower Decks. So, but you know, those were backup plans, and and Janeway was always our first and foremost, and in our minds, only choice. But obviously, as a writer and and a producer, especially, you always have to come up with contingencies. Was were there discussions with her, or did she talk with you at any moments of you know? I don't think Janeway would handle it this way because hologram Janeway. I mean, it's not exactly her, but it kind of is her. So, what were the discussions like with her about what could or could not be done in directions for that? character yeah i th i think the main discussions with her were sort of articulating um you know the differences between hologram janeway and the real janeway and I, and she and to her credit she understood it pretty quickly and then it was as much up to her to kind of find those interesting nuances um you know and on top of that well spoiler alert if you if you haven't watched season one yet watch all of season one and, and then re replay this podcast um you know, one of the things that we were building towards is that this this hollow program was in fact damaged or manipulated by the Vaunacot to be more sort of amenable and pliable to whoever's captain in the ship will help them get back to the Delta, to the Alpha Quadrant. Um, and so, I think once she understood that this is a, this was sort of like a manipulated program that would be to with the perhaps the naivete. Uh, filters cranked up at least initially and then she gradually evolved to sort of regain uh, uh, sentience and and self-assertion uh she she found a way to play that very beautifully especially when she had the two facing off against each other and then it all builds that really uh beautiful um that, that really beautiful kind of climax where you have a self-actualized hologram janeway soliciting the real janeway or at least her mind and how how to um, how best to get out of the mess of a situation they find themselves in in the climax of the series uh, of the season. So so yeah, it was um, it was a really interesting challenge for her, but especially for us as writers to make sure we kept all that in our heads. <laughs> I think a great thing that you guys added to the show um, was the Janeway with the coffee, the hologram Janeway drinking the coffee. <laughs> yeah. uh, whose idea was that to add that little detail? Um, I think. It was one of those spontaneous things that as soon as somebody said it, and I honestly don't remember who said it, but but uh, everybody in the room was like, well, of course she does. <laughs> and, 
you know, I very quickly, it spun off with some of the nerdier people in the writer's room. It's like, well, why is she drinking holographic coffee? And I think very quickly, one of us, maybe me, I don't remember, said, well, you know, uh, the way hollow programs work is usually there is a uh, um, personality matrix. And wouldn't it be funny if as they were sort of scanning the original Janeway, they found if you took away the coffee, the whole hollow program would dematerialize, <laughs> decompile. It just couldn't work without her with her, her hollow coffee. And everybody seemed to love that idea. So, um, of, of course, and then it became sort of a staple and everyone loved it. And and you're you're also the writer of one of my favorite episodes, not only of all Star Trek, but definitely the series, but all um one of my favorites of all Star Trek, the Kobayashi um episode, mm -hmm. where you brought back a lot of the classic characters. Uh Spock came back, uh, Mr. Scott appears, um others. Um what was the conversation like about that? Um how did you write the show to make sure that the voice actors you had dialogue from other series to borrow from? Um, can you kind of talk me through how that all was set up? I mean, it it kind of came about organically because we started from a character perspective of let's put Dal through the Kobayashi Maru, you know, to help break him down as a cocksure wannabe captain and make him realize that there are consequences to his actions and he should listen to his crew, which is kind of the purpose of it, really, besides just understanding what it means to fail, right, and dealing with that from an emotional standpoint. Um, and so uh, it started from that. And then as we got into the open question of like, well, what would a holodeck simulation of the of this Starfleet Academy program look like? Because canonically, we had only seen what it looked like 115 years prior or what have you, <laughs> um, which was, if you recall from Wrath of Khan, literally a bunch of celebrated Starfleet heroes pretending to die <laughs> on a simulated deck and then picking themselves up and say, brushing themselves off and saying, you failed, cadet, which we were like, surely in the age of the holodeck, they would up update this. But for whatever reason, having like the best of the best of a bridge crew felt like it was part of the program. And, you know, you have Spock as your number one, and then you have, you know, the, the cadet in the captain's chair. Um, so we're like, well, what would that look like in the age of the holodeck? And of course, we we realized, oh, there would be probably parameters in which you could maybe that would become part of it. Is like as as the the um, cadet is being tested as part of it, like he's given the impression that he can pick out the best bridge crew, and and that's part of him his captainhood. Um, anyway, and then of course that devolved into a writer's argument of what, who's the best bridge crew, and then we spent hours and hours debating that and came to no conclusions whatsoever because everybody, every single Star Trek has amazing characters that all work together in different ways. So, uh, you know, ultimately it kind of like fell in my lap of like, well, just try to do something with this. And we did talk like, do we want to recast people? Do we want to see just go with who's available? And then I think we decided it would because this was you have to remember this was before um strange new worlds uh and whatnot we were like wouldn't it be great just to find a way to to use uh leonard nimoy's original performances because in the script as we broke it the points he were he was making were ones that were straight from other shows anyway so we we're like what if we found a way to do that and then uh, as the show, as the breaking of it went on, we were like, well, if we're including other characters, what if we, as an experiment, we tried to preserve their their um, performances as well? And, uh, you know, we reached out to a lot of people, and Gates McFadden absolutely, uh, obviously said yes, thankfully. 
Um, you know, we had, we did reach out to Rene Abergenois, um, but then he unfortunately passed away um, before we could record him. And so then it kind of, we realized that, do we just write him out of it now? That didn't really feel right to me. And so I, I decided, uh, along with the Hagemans, to just put in the sweat equity and see if we could find a way to to use Renee's performances as well as Odo. Um, and it kind of, and then we went out to Michelle Nichols, and she was unfortunately too sick to record. But she said, if you can, if her, her estate said, you know, if you can use um, her original performances, we would love that. And so it all just kind of went from there. And it all told, I think I read something like eighty Star Trek scripts from across Star Trek, rewatched top to bottom about thirty or forty episodes, just trying to find those exact takes that that could actually fit together. Uh, I started to lose my mind a little bit, but ultimately it was worth <laughs> it. And the fact that it was a hollow program, you know, kind of made it okay in my mind of the you know that that they. It, you know, because it, it makes sense that, that ships would have logs and record what people said and it might borrow from that. And <laughs> it only seems to have become more relevant today in the age of chat GDP or whatever. And I think another great thing for Prodigy is that it has found new life on Netflix. So yes, was it about the move to Netflix? Do you think that has now like reignited the interest in the series? Well, I think... It's. I'm not really talking out of school when I say that Netflix just has a tremendous reach. Like it's bigger than any any other platform out there, um, and there are so many people that just never had a chance to see it before. Uh, and on top of that, I think people wanted to support the show, and you know, uh, help really helps get the word out. And sure enough, you know, you I've seen it popping up on top ten kids lists uh, around the globe. I think it's it achieved that on like in 15 different countries or something like that. And uh, it, it does seem to have really lit a fire and, and it feels like it's finally finding uh, the audience that we always knew it could. So uh, for that reason, I'm extremely grateful for everybody who fought for the show and for um, you know CBS and everyone who, who went out of their way to, who, and, and Alex Kurtzman who all said, this is a great show. Let's let's find a home for it that that will find the the viewers that we wanted to, and it, and it seems to have done that. And now that's been so popular on Netflix, there's obviously discussion discussion from season two. Is there any updates you can give the audience and your listeners about where we are with season two happening? Yeah, so season two is done. We have uh, we have twenty episodes that are coming later this year. We finished. Uh, um, you know, mixing them and animating them and the writing for them are done was done quite a while ago. So, um, you know, stay tuned from Netflix for details on when season two will drop. But, um, you know, we're very excited for people to see those. And, you know, if it does well, the sky's the limit. Who knows? Uh, we may get more. That is awesome. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're an absolute pleasure. And like I said, great job with Star Trek Prodigy. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been, it was really fun chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Have a good night. You too. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Traversing the Stars podcast. Please help me battle the algorithms by liking and subscribing. Be sure to return for the next exciting episode when D-Clan Shalvi boards the mothership. He's the writer of Thundercats and Alien. Till next voyage, travel on.